On average, over 5,000 students at American universities are awarded PhDs in the humanities each year. Where is all this talent headed? What are these scholars doing? Welcome. You're listening to Careers in the Public Humanities, a podcast that explores the range of careers beyond academia. Each episode, we'll interview a person who's put their degree to use in innovative ways within cultural institutions, in digital and media production, in state or federal agencies, and other literary and cultural publics, in hopes of inspiring other humanities scholars to broaden the view of their career possibilities. This podcast is produced by English PhD students and alumni from the University of Rhode Island and has been made possible by Humanities at Large, a URI initiative funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities Next Generation PhD Grant Program. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Winters, and today we are once again in the sound room of the Harrington School of Communication of Media to speak with Christina Bevilacqua, the Programs and Exhibitions Director at Providence Public Library and Conversationalist in Residence at Trinity Repertory Company. She earned a BA in Writing and Literature from Bard College and an MA in Social Policy from the University of Chicago. Thank you for speaking with us today, Christina. It's my pleasure. First, you've had a number of different positions, including curating public programming from 2005 to 2016 at the Providence Athenaeum. But the humanities have been an essential part in all of your work. Why? What do the humanities mean to you? I often think about this. Um, I've had such a weird variety of things in my career. I was also a hat designer for a while. I worked as a social worker. I think the thread is a thread of stories and narrative. But when I think particularly about in the work that I did at the Athenaeum and that I'm doing at Providence Public Library and public programming, I think the thing that is really valuable about the humanities is they allow for complication. I think we live in a time that somewhat fetishizes simplicity, and I love, you know, the look of a clean room with Apple products in the corners, whatever. But in terms of of our lives, our lives are not simple, our lives are not clean. And I think that, you know, the more that there's this sort of outward notion of conformity and uniformity and reduce like even the mania for hacking and hacking hack life hacks to make things simpler in reality all of that I think puts a lot of pressure on us I think that we are sort of encouraged to hide the parts of our own narratives or our own feelings about things that don't fit into that more uniform narrative and what I love with the humanities is that it allows for idiosyncrasy and individuality. And I often think that it's through those individual idiosyncratic either experiences or reading or, or, or taking in those experiences through some media. That's how we get at what really is universal. I love the complication and complexity that we can kind of revel in, in when we are experiencing what the humanities have to offer. I like that a lot because normally people focus on how the humanities actually helps you to understand, but this is almost a little bit of just accepting the complexity. That we can't understand. (laughs) I mean, I, you know, certainly I think, you know, if you read a lot, if you study history or whatever, you know, whatever it is, obviously the more narratives and the more different perspectives you come across, it's not that I don't value those things, but I was thinking, I don't know what made me think about this recently, but just the idea that there's a kind of comfort in experiencing all that stuff that 
that Instagram doesn't include, for instance. A lot of your positions and programs have focused on conversation. From the Salon series you founded and ran at the Athenaeum to your current role as conversationalist in residence at Trinity Rep. What do you mean when you say conversation? What is the significance of conversation today? I am speaking specifically about the kind of conversation you and I are having right now because we're actually in the same room and at the same time and we don't exactly know, you know, I mean, I have a general idea of why I'm here, but, but our conversation is, is not, it hasn't happened yet. I love the, there's a risk to conversation, there's a kind of presence to conversation. I also love the ephemerality of it that that in the world where we can go back and look at anything again and a million times and whatever, this conversation is being recorded, but many conversations are not. And if you weren't there, you missed it. And there's so little in the world now that that's true of. So there's something about the, the immediacy and, and the risk. I will say when I'm, when I'm moderating a conversation, as I've been doing a lot more in the last year or two through Trinity and through the programs we do at PPL, I, when I'm preparing the participants, they don't like, well, I won't say they don't like it, but they usually want me to give them the questions and I say I'm not going to give you the questions because I don't want to have the conversation ahead of time and I want there to be the surprises that can happen and I'm also usually interviewing anywhere from five to eight or I think we had one last year at Trinity with ten people, which was crazy, but, and so I'm, I'm listening for something from somebody that I can connect to something from somebody else. And I always say that if there's not a sense that the whole thing could go off the rails, it's probably not a really good conversation. There's something about, because, because when there's a sense of, of anticipation and not knowing what's gonna happen, that's what makes people sit up and pay attention, I think. They're not sure about where this is gonna go. And I'm not sure where it's gonna go. And I actually did one conversation last year for Trinity at Sophia Academy, and a, a, some sort of a poster or something literally fell in my head, which was hilarious. I mean, it, you know, it was a very lightweight poster, but it, but it was a good, I often think of that like, like that's the kind of thing, you know, anything can happen in a conversation, something can fall in your head, and you have to sort of be able to pick up and go with that. So I think that's part of it. Again, I think we just don't have a lot of conversation. I mean, there's a lot of conversation online and I don't take anything away from that. I'm not somebody who likes to, I mean, I'm not on social media. I'm, I'm, I have a one account with a brother who lives in Spain because that's an easy way for us to communicate. But, you know, I don't particularly love that, but I know people who do and who find it just as rewarding in all different ways. For me, the, the idea of it being a, in a time and place and then it's gone, that is an animating feature of it for me. So what I'm curious about is that most of these conversations are not staged because we covered that they're mm -hmm. they're spontaneous in, in many ways but they they are they're public they're they're for an audience to watch mm -hmm. so how does that function because to some extent if we're talking about social media and online that's like lurking on a message right. board right. well but it always ends with there's always time at the end for the for the audience to be part of that conversation. And so, and I always make sure it's not like 10 minutes. It's, you know, if we do a 45 minute conversation, there's a half an hour okay. for, yeah. So that's a big piece of it. And, you know, those conversations, I mean, they're moderated, but again, I go in with a bunch of questions that are a starting point, but 
as I'm sure will happen, you know, if I tell you that actually I trained elephants for a period of my career, you might ask me about that, even though that wasn't on my resume or whatever. So you're always sort of going with what comes up in the conversation. And it's a process of discovery for everybody there, including me, even though I'm the one supposedly, you know, that, that is orchestrating to some degree. I've orchestrated who's in that room. And in the case of Context and Conversation, which is a program that PPL and Trinity have been doing for the last two years, it is inspired by a play that's on stage at Trinity at the moment, but it doesn't depend on that. So you, it, it is designed for panelists to see the play with all their different perspectives, come and have a conversation that we use the play a little bit, but really it's a conversation where I'm, I'm pulling their particular responses. And the audience, many times, the one we did most recently, I think maybe four people out of 25 had seen the play. The idea of it being, it's moderated and, and I've, I've orchestrated it, but I don't really know where it's going to go. How did you come to, to curating these conversations, to saying that this was what originally the Athenaeum needed in their programming? So at the Athenaeum, it was different because I didn't do, I mean, we eventually, because I did that, the salon, I was there for 11 years, and it really evolved a lot over that time, obviously. And those conversations were weekly, about seven months of the year, so it was a lot. I, um, and you baked scones for every baked single scones. one. I know. I, I once calculated, I think I, I think I calculated that I baked 30,000 scones or something like that over the course of the 11 years. Um, Dedication. So um, I don't miss that, I have to say. But that tended more to be somebody coming and talking about work that they had done in all different realms. And sometimes it was more than one person. And I actually learned over time that it was better to have a couple of people because that modeled something conversational. And so then when we opened it, you know, there was already a kind of back and forth. Very occasionally I moderated those conversations, but not really very often. I was more curating who was there and curating the season and sort of curating that experience, but I didn't get as involved in actually directly engaging with the participants. The way that that came about, and you know, these things are always a mix of inspiration and desperation. So when I started there, it was at a particularly difficult time at the Athenaeum, and um, there was, for reasons too long to go into it in the course of this podcast, let's just say we did not have a big budget, even by Athenaeum standards. And so I was trying to figure out programming that I wasn't going to have to spend any money on, or as little money as possible. So the idea, and, and Providence is a very rich culturally rich city. There are any given night you can go to a million great things, and usually for free. So I knew that even if I had a big budget, I was, and I didn't, you know, the idea was not going to be like, I'm going to get some incredible superstar that everybody's going to want to come see. It was how do you brand an experience and create a space where when people come here and they leave and they talk about it the next day, it's not just so-and-so said this brilliant thing last night, but I had this really wonderful experience. Then also did a little bit of research back to the humanities into the history of Benefit Street where the Athenaeum was located and literary history and social history and lo and behold there had been quite a few 19th century salons run by women who were members of the Athenaeum or who lived near the Athenaeum and so there was this kind of beautiful aptness to reviving something that had been very much part of the world when the Athenaeum 
came into being. And what cracked me up the whole time I was there was that I would often, people would say to me, so the salon has been going on since the 19th century? And it'd be like, no, it's been going on since 2006. But, there, but I think that spoke to how much it was, you know, it seemed like something that could have been there. And then we made it weekly so that people didn't have to think about it and schedule it. You could just drop in. If Friday night came and you felt like it, you could stop in and not have to think about it. Now I think that's very, very crowded, and I think you may have to reserve now, but, but we didn't in those days. I mean, it still got very crowded. So at, at Trinity, the Context and Conversation series, which started between when I was at the Athenaeum and when I got to PPL, it was kind of dreamed up with Rebecca Noon, who was the person who did community engagement at Trinity for many years, and she just got hired away by the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, which was great for her, but sad for us. But we wanted to create a program that was not just for the audience members of Trinity and that was not in the theater. And the idea was that the theater, and Trinity is really, I think, in the last number of years, really focusing on very socially relevant work with you know great intention. And so there are all these really fascinating ideas alive on that stage. And so for the people that can't go to Trinity or don't like theater or you know whatever, it's too expensive, they can have an opportunity to engage with the ideas that are alive on that stage through context and conversation. Because again, we use the, the theme or themes of the play as a jumping off point and then create this conversation completely outside of that. And I would say then when I got to PPL, one of the things that, one of the sort of imperatives at the library was to, was to look at more humanities-focused programming. And so the fact that Rebecca and I had created this series that really was about making public this humanities-based work, it just seemed like a natural, and we're, you know, we're literally neighbors. I mean, Trinity is right across the street from us, and so it was a wonderful way to kind of combine what the library's mission is and what Trinity was up to. And so then, I think partway through last year, we kind of made it a, a joint effort, and it has been ever since. But just to be clear, you don't have these conversations in either the library or the no. theater. You have them all across all the city. <laughs> so like the Southside Cultural Center, Wage House, which is a small improv theater in Pawtucket in an old mill building, right. the Sophia Academy. Uh, you're having one in a music school. We just office. did one at the music studio, at Zabinski Music Studio. It was on Sunday, which was great. The next one is at the Herbarium at Brown for Little Shop of Horrors. And then we'll be at Matthewson Street Church for Marisol, which is the last one. So yeah, the, in fact, even, not even just in Providence, but we've thought about, you know, really kind of taking it, because obviously there are Trinity subscribers all over the state. The first one we did was for Skeleton Crew and Death of a Salesman, and we did that at a labor union hall, I think it was the Transit Workers Hall. Several, bu several of the bus drivers were part of the conversation, and you know it was about labor and the history of labor. And, and the other thing about these, which again, going back to the humanities, these conversations always include a scholar, an artist, and a community practitioner, at least one of each. And sometimes there are people that you know, play several of those roles, but there's always one of each, so that the perspectives are really, it's not just people with different opinions of something, it's people that come at something from completely different perspectives. And I, as I'm curating, and you know, sometimes it's really easy to find the scholar and really easy to find the community practitioner, but where's the artist, and, and you know, or any combination of those. 
And each time as I start to, you know, as we get close to it, the deadline and I don't have one of these, I realize, no, I have to, you know, they're, they're really, I, I now have been doing it long enough that the value of that model, I'm just so committed to. We just, the one that we just did on Sunday that was connected to the Song of Summer, the play going on at Trinity now, which ostensibly on the surface is about a, the music business, but really the, what complicates that play about the music business in the, that humanities-based way is a lot of under the surface things that the playwright has specified about the family relationships, including transnational adoption, and other issues around kind of family structure. And it's not what the play is about. There are almost no lines dedicated to those topics. But it was, you know, the more I read the play and saw the play, the more that theme began to seem really, really important and that the playwright had made these very particular decisions. And we had a fantastic conversation about that on Sunday with someone who is a Korean adoptee raised in the United States, who's an artist and writer, who focuses on those on the issues around adoption, a white mother who has, she and her husband have adopted an African-American child, an anthropologist who works on transnational adoption of Latin American children to Spain, a scholar who wrote, and I think he was American Studies and Comparative Lit, I think, but he did a PhD on the Cuban diaspora and illegitimate family members within that, and then looking at how the, the nation state begins to reflect the family and the relationship between those two things when you're no longer in your country of origin. And then a woman who had written an essay on realizing, coming to terms in her 60s with not having had children. So it was a huge mix and a fantastic conversation. And um, one of the people in the conversation is a film curator. And she afterwards said, we need to bring a documentary of some apt topic and get this panel back together because there was so much, we didn't even scratch the surface. But anyway, so that's, you know, that's sort of an example of this idea at work. When you create that panel of people, do you tell everyone who else is going to be on the panel, or who else is going to just generally constitute it? And do you ever have the people who's, it's their lived experience, or a community mm. practitioner, do you ever have people say, oh no, I can't talk about that, I just, I am just a transit worker? Yes, and the thing I always say to everybody before the panel is, or before, you know, when I put out the invitation to them, because they have to agree to see the play, you know, make time to do that and then come and do this conversation. And really, you know, the compensation is they get, they get tickets to the play, but, you know, again, then again, they have to see the play. So, so I always say you don't have to do any other preparation. And this actually becomes, there are two issues. One is with the community practitioner, and I have definitely had that happen, of I don't have any expertise, so I shouldn't be on this panel. But the experts also who are afraid that, you know, they're going to have to study up and be a have statistics available or whatever. And I always say, your preparation is the life you've lived up until now, until I've encountered you somehow. And so what I'm asking you to do is not come back with your expertise, but take your experience into the theater and process this play through your experience and then reflect on it in this conversation. So we've, you know, I mean, I'm not sure that people always trust that that's really going to be true, but it has always been true. And I'm, I'm really almost never asking somebody there to be able to give us 
you know, sort of really intense factual background. I mean, certainly if I ask a historian, when we did the one on skeleton crew and death of a salesman, it was a sociologist who has done a lot of work on labor history and race in labor history. And I knew him well enough, and I've heard him speak and read his work. I knew him well enough to know this is the stuff he can talk about off the top of his head. And also it's a general audience. We're not, it isn't an academic audience. So, and that's actually been interesting too. There were a couple of times at the Athenaeum, I, I love working with scholars. I love going through faculty listings and even graduate student listings and reading, you know, what are people interested in? What are the things they wrote about a few years ago that they maybe are not focused on now, but that, that might have a thread of this. And sometimes I think what I heard a lot at the Athenaeum with scholars that I ended up working with was it was, it was really a pleasure to be asked to do something that, that reflected their scholarly work but was not within the academy in that kind of competitive. You know, there was, it was, I get to take these scholar skills and apply it in a very different way. And the questions that the audience asks obviously are very different than if you're at, you know, scholarly gatherings where it, it is more competitive. You're in a setting that's just different. And I'm sure there are, there are scholars who don't feel that that's fun and interesting. But, but when they do, I think it's, it's really, in fact, several people then, you know, kind of looked into topics for salon series that we were doing and then have kind of followed those, which I thought was really great. If you're somebody who's open to somebody coming along and saying, how about this? And you think you're, if your first instinct is yes, then you're, this is the kind of thing for you. I've read some really beautiful things you've said about theater, how it is a perfect environment for conversation. One of the things, for example, is it helps us think about ourselves. Can you elaborate a little bit more on your thoughts about theater? And also, do you think that it is unique to theater as a form? Well, I think, again, going back to the idea of conversation and the sort of the riskiness, the, the sense of we're, we're present in a moment, sharing it. I mean, I love film, but it's a completely different experience. And Oscar Eustace, the former director, artistic director at Trinity's Public Theater now, I heard him once say this thing, and I think it's so true, that when you go into a movie and there's nobody else there, you're thrilled, like you're the only one in the audience. But if you go to the theater and nobody else is there, it's really a drag. You know, you want other people there. So I think, you know, you're watching people having conversation and you're taking that in, but also... The performance is always in conversation with the audience. So again, that, that real sense of you were there for, you all shared this, this passage of time and this experience of these words and this history of this play. And so it, I think it kind of isn't like anything else. And again, you know, the more, I mean, maybe more things used to be like that because not as many things used to be mediated, but, you know, sort of, Mediated is now the default, and non-mediated is the outlier kind of, you know, rare things. Moving away from theater and conversation, I wanted to ask how you got to where you are now at the Providence Public Library. This is a sort of a joke, but I always say about my career, don't try this at home. I, I've definitely had, and I, I was not particularly focused in where I ever went, but I will say that when I started, I mean, I think working at the Athenaeum, being in a library setting as a non-librarian, I really, I, you know, I'm a huge reader. I love all of that. I love the idea of the kind of weird mix that ends up at the library. So I, I came to really enjoy 
that setting. When I was, the last couple of years at the Athenaeum, some of the programming we were doing, I mean, we did, we did so much collaborative programming with other organizations in the city, that was really kind of the focus, including AS220, and Aaron Peterman was at that time, I can't remember what his title there was, he probably had a bunch of them, but general manager or something, he was often overseeing enormous construction projects, but is also an artist, and he did a couple of things with us at the Athenaeum, and so I knew him, and he left AS220 for the library right around the time that I was leaving the Athenaeum, and we stayed in touch, and at some point he mentioned that the person that had been there, a program person for a long, long time, was probably going to be retiring, but it might be a couple of years, and you know, he said, would you be interested? And it was sort of like, you know, yes, of course, but it, you know, it didn't seem like anything imminent. And then she made a decision shortly after that to retire much sooner. You know, they did a hiring process and I went through all of that. But it was very interesting, the timing was very interesting because it was, I started there in, I think, November of 2017. This is 2019, yes. The political climate was in free fall. You know, the sense of the stakes around public engagement, civic engagement, all of those kinds of things began to seem much more weighted to me. And so the idea of being able to work, I mean, the Athenaeum is open to the public and there were lots of people from the public who came in and I really kind of focused on that when I was there, really, you know, getting as many people in as possible. But it's a different kind of library. You know, Providence Public Library has a different mission in a lot of ways. And, uh, and it was really interesting to me at a time when it felt like public institutions that really were open to everybody were going to be more and more important. And, you know, it's free. There are all these resources there. It's a staff that is, I mean, truly 24-7, everybody on that staff is thinking about how do we serve the people that need service. First of all, what are the services people need and how do we provide them? And yet also, again, like, you know, I, I, it's also, I love being, I mean, it was very interesting at the Athenaeum, there was this kind of focus, um, focus of energy, cultural energy because there was Brown and RISD, there was the RISD Museum, there was the Historical Society, the Preservation Society, the Athenaeum. So all, you know, lots of collegial organizations. But at PPL, it's Trinity and Arts, Culture, and Tourism for the City is right down the street, and AS220 is there, and the Humanities Council is there, and Roger Williams is across the street now. So again, this kind of real sense of being at a center of a lot of energy and a lot of resources, and how do we best make sure that those resources are known about and used. But how does the library work as a place for civic life? And also, how does that relationship to civics connect to the humanities? I was just at an event last night on civic edu civics education and, um, and thinking a lot about there's a project I'm hoping to do next year, some programming around 19th century immigration in the Pond Street area, so essentially west of the highway and looking at the 19th century immigrant experience from all these different perspectives, including voting and who got to vote and how did the vote, you know, how did all of that sort of transpire. And as I was at this event last night at the State House, and it was, it was experts from Massachusetts who have, because Massachusetts has just finally passed legislation that requires civics education. 
right, which uh, they were very encouraging because they said, you know, it took us decades. Um, so the people who've been working on this for decades in Rhode Island were there to be encouraged. But I was thinking I would love to connect with, as I'm thinking about this programming for next year on immigration and enfranchisement and voting and all of those things and pulling in community partners, it would be great to bring in the civic education because again, you know, it's always these ideas of what is available, but also how do people know about it? How do they access whatever is supposedly available? And so you can, you can have even money for something, but if people don't know how to get to it or get to what it is. So anyway, I, th that is a long-winded, complicated way around saying that, you know, that humanities-based programming in history, I think I would love to connect that to current efforts to teach civics in the schools because, again, I think these um, these ideas, uh, you know, we again, we take the vote for granted, you know, I mean, somebody went through all the statistics last night, you know, the few number of people who show up in our elections and but really thinking about a time not that long ago when people were fighting to be able to vote. And so, you know, how do we think about that now and, and, and how do we kind of bring those two things together, the importance of civic education now and what, what the sort of history of enfranchisement is in this country. That's interesting, especially just thinking about the, the place of these public institutions as being a point where the public already knows to access yes. things, and so it's important yes. to not just say like, oh, it's public, it's out there, but to, to look at where people are already going to access things to make sure that it is truly accessible as yes. opposed to just public in name only. Right. Well, and I think when the um, when Providence was a, a kind of test site for the um, upcoming census last year, and w one of the things, when I very first got to the library, the census folks were carrying out that part of that experiment was happening there. And I think, again, because it's a place that it's easy for people to find, you can get to it on the bus, you know, it, there's, a, there's just a logic to, um, people understand what that means. Um, and even if you're coming, you know, even if it's an issue of language, um, you know, there's, there's an understanding that we are in the middle of, the, and that, and we also had, um, I mean, right now our services are, are constrained because we have jackhammers everywhere, but we had someone on site from House of Hope, which is a peer-to-peer -peer center for services for people who are homeless. And um, so we had somebody there several days a week um, until the renovation because we have many, many people coming in who you know, need all kinds of services, and sometimes it's just needing to get in out of the cold, but also then having somebody there who's able to help when they, they go out to the next thing, you know, maybe there's um, access to food or shelter or whatever, um, mental health services, whatever it might be. So again, you know, a place, I mean, and again, to go back to like loving the idea of not knowing what's gonna happen, I mean, there's no place better than a library for um, on any given day, you know, so many different people walk through, so many people are looking for so many different things, um, and the, the effort is always to figure out, you know, how can you do as much as possible, and, but do all of it well, obviously. 
I recently saw a program in which you used your sewing skills because you did mention that you, you made hats. Right. Uh, I heard it that you were a custom milliner for about 10 years. So you did this program called Meditative Mending at the RISD Museum, so the Rhode Island School of Design. How did this practice of embodied meditation come to be? Like, how did you end up doing this program? Um, well, Kate Irvin, who is the curator of custom and textiles there, has been working on this show called Repair for the last several years, and we had talked a few years ago about it, and I think the show opened in October, and it's up until May, and the idea was to do a lot of programming. So we met, I don't know, a year ago, even probably more than that, to talk about possible ways to connect. And so it's, oh, and so I guess what happened was, this is one of those weird serendipitous things. I mean, I was thinking, like, what would be, you know, how can we participate in this? And, and then meanwhile, I had this stack of mending at home, and at some point, I finally ran out of, you know, some, like, sweaters or something, and I had to mend something. And so I sat down one day, and started mending, and, and then I just kind of kept going. It was like, oh, I have a little more time. I'll just get a little more done. And at the end, I mean, there were clothes that I had basically not been able to wear in two years because they'd had a hole in them or whatever. And so there was this great sense of accomplishment, first of all. And now I didn't have this pile sitting, you know, that I kept moving from place to place. And I, I had really sort of calmed down <laughs> in a way that I normally don't have time to. And I didn't set out to do that, but you know that just sort of I was aware when I finished that I had a kind of calm sense, like you know that I had been in that flow that people talk about. So I mentioned it to Kate and said, you know, I'd be willing to just show up with needles and thread, and um, if nobody comes, it's fine because I'll get a few hours of mending done. And so I did three of them. We, I think I did one in January, one in February, and one in March um, for two hours on a Saturday afternoon. And the first one, we were laughing because it was not meditative. There was a lot of mending, but it was like a mending rave. It was very kind of energetic and people people had all kinds of things to say, and but very fun. Um, and then the next two, it, they got progressively more meditative as time went by. And people brought, some people had questions about how to do something. Other people just came and you know had mending. And that was kind of what I had thought, that it was just like, I'll never get to this if I try to do it at home, but if I bring it in and do it in a group. And then we had things like a woman walked through and her coat had a hole in it and she had no idea that it was going on, but it was like, oh, my coat has a hole, can I stop and mend it? And so we gave her a needle and thread and she mended it and went on her way. So it was very fun. And the show is so beautiful and there's been such, such great programming done around it. I mean, all different kinds of things and still lots to come. So I highly encourage people to see it. I know you already said don't try this at home, but... Speaking of, of what was essentially just a conversation and then came to be having a program at the RISD Museum, it seems like you created a lot of these opportunities and sometimes positions for yourself in some ways. How? How did you do that? I think that's really true, and that's, that's very perceptive because I don't think I ever really thought about it that way. I, one of the things that I, you know, I mean, occasionally somebody who's young and just getting out of school or whatever will come and say, like, how did you get your job? And it's always like, I mean, I always start by saying I was born in a different century and it was totally different. You know, if I were now, I don't know what would have happened to me. I mean, I was in high school in the 70s and graduated from college in the 80s, or in 1980. I also, I think part of it, I grew up in a family, my, we moved every year and so I lived in lots of different places and kind of had to start over every year. So I'm pretty resourceful in terms of trying new things. 
I'm probably better at trying new things than, than sticking with things, although, I mean, I was at the Athenaeum for quite a while. That was unusual for me. One of the things that I do tell people, and I, this was very important for me early in my career and throughout, actually, is if you're in a job that you don't love, first of all, it's not going to last forever. The best thing to do, I mean, look for other things, but also, but also it's really good to know what you don't like. Like, I'm all for having a bad job because then you can just, you get out and you realize, now I know I never want to do that again, which is enormously helpful and, you know, it's a great organizing principle. But I always did volunteer work. I would always, and not like, well, I shouldn't say it like this, but not like volunteer work to feel, you know, like I was bettering the world, but more like what are things that I am really interested in doing and I, can, I can't get hired to do those things yet. Um, either I don't have enough experience or I don't have any experience, but I have an interest. And you are better able to make a place for yourself in a volunteer organization. You learn about what that field is really like and I definitely had volunteer jobs that led to actual jobs, but also, if I look back, you know, 20 and 30 years, it's what I was doing as a volunteer that is much closer to what I'm doing now than whatever I was doing as a job. So I think that that is a, and, and I think that there's a lot of pressure. This was not true when I was young. I mean, I grew up at the end of, you know, the 1670s, so it was very much like do whatever and experiment. And, you know, there are times when I wish I, I had, it had been a little different than that, but there are other things about it that I think were great. And again, that idea that you would sort of jump in and try things with the idea that if I don't like it, I can just do something else. But also, nothing that we did was, you know, preserved online for the rest of our lives. I mean, you could sort of try things and then forget about them and nobody else could remember them either. I think there's a lot of pressure now to choose properly, to choose well, to not make any mistakes. I think to discover who you are and what you love, you you have to be willing to you know make a mistake. Now, a mistake now and again. I don't know that I would call it that. I think that's how you figure out what you care about. It's good to have. It's good sometimes to think like, oh, this is. I want this so much. I want this so much, and then you don't get it, and then you realize a few years later, God, I'm so glad I didn't get that. You know, that would not have been what I wanted to do. I mean, I think about this, I think about ambition, the idea of ambition a lot, because I sometimes think I'm very unambitious. But I think that's actually not true. I would say that my ambition at a certain point, maybe when I was in my late 20s or early 30s, was I really want every day to be really interesting. <laughs> like, I don't care as much about what my title is, I mean, obviously, I need to be able to pay my rent or my mortgage, whatever. But I was very, I read something that somebody said one time, you know, when you're looking for jobs, you often think, what do I want to be? I, I, I like the law, therefore, I want to be a lawyer. Or I like medicine, I want to be a doctor. But she said, I wanted to think about when would I get up in the morning? How would I get to work? Like, what would my day consist of? And I thought that was so smart. And I wouldn't say that that's exactly how I have formed my life, but I do very frequently now, when I'm very stressed or having a really busy week or something, and thinking like, ah, I stop and think, look at what you get to do as your job. <laughs> like, this is such, you know, all of these things are things that you would be doing even if, even if it wasn't your job. Like, what could be better than that? So get over yourself. But I, I think knowing what's important to you takes takes trying things and figuring out what's not as important to you.
And so I'm really grateful for all the weird jobs. I also have this belief that everybody should do a year of retail, at least a year of retail and a year of restaurant work because everybody would behave much better if they had had that experience. So, you know, I think there are just different ways to to think about going forward in your career. I also realize that I don't know what it's like to be getting out of college right now. It's a different world than I was in. But I do think the idea of experimenting when you can. I also realize that to say a volunteer job, there are many, you know, now it's much more common that you end up your only job is a volunteer job because it's difficult to find something. But I don't know. I think trying different things is really important. And volunteering is a great, great way to to get experience that you couldn't otherwise get. And you can put it on a resume. I mean, you know, and you get great references and all of that stuff. Do you have any advice for our listeners and primarily graduate students, whether they're at the beginning of their career, the end of their career, getting a master's, getting a PhD, just generally in the humanities? I probably have a job that is more engaged with people in the academy than than anybody outside of the academy because I'm really, really interested in the pull, the relationship between scholars and quote-unquote the real world. I think that there's so much value to the perspective of, you know, someone who is reading and thinking about things in this, you know, whether it's history or literature or sociology or whatever it is, the idea of being engaged in in the discipline in that way that you are you are pushing it forward, you are asking questions about it, you are embodying what it now means. I mean, all of that is really important. I also really love being out in the world where, you know, I work with a lot of people, or I mean literally the people I work with, but I mean, I, you know, in my week, I spend a lot of time with people who would never care about that sort of thing. But I think the interesting thing is the incredible richness that comes when those two things come together. You know, when I was talking earlier about the artist-scholar community practitioner idea, the thing that the scholar brings, you know, the community practitioner is often in the weeds of whatever this topic is. They are living it. The artist is, is, is finding a way to express what that reality is in a way that other people can understand it. The scholar is pulling back and letting us see it in an almost abstract way so that we're not caught in the middle of it, but we have a wider perspective on it. And so if you're in the humanities and you don't want to stay in the academy, Again, I, as you said, I was somebody who sort of found a way to do this, but I, I do think that there is receptivity right now to the skills that, that humanists have. You know, the idea of being able to understand other people, to be able to communicate, to have a sense of history and precedent and how things have happened in the past and questioning, you know, again, that questioning, that idea of how do you how do you make decisions how do you weigh things how do you op- how do you continually open for a wider range of of what perspectives are allowed in all of those things are are things that organizations need you know whether they're for profit or not for profit so i think that there are a lot of really valuable skills that humanists have and then it's a matter of being somewhat entrepreneurial i guess you know, when I went to Trinity and proposed conversationalist in residence, and literally that's what I proposed. I mean, I knew, you know, I had worked with people there a bit before. 
you know, they loved that idea. Like, they got it right away. Even just the hilariousness of the title is so funny. But they were very open to that. And I think that I think that there are, there are opportunities to do that. And again, you know, that was, I wasn't proposing a full-time job there. It was something very part-time, but it gave me a way to stretch and use some new skills. It brought a different perspective into the, some of the work that they were doing. And so it was, a, it was a win-win. It's just looking outside of what's already there, which the humanities also teaches you to do. So yeah, just don't, don't only do it in the thing you've always done it in, do it wider. Yes, definitely. For me, the, uh, the place of comfort is, and I've actually, this is something I've also said to people who've called me and said, like, I'm, I'm looking at this job. I don't know if I should do this. I don't, I'm not sure I really have the experience or I'm not sure if it's what I want to do. It's like, I always, unless there's something really terrible about the job, you know, but if you, if you, if what's stopping you is this sense of, it's a risk, then it's like, then do it. Like, I, I feel like being in a job where you feel a little bit of risk all the time is what makes it interesting and exciting. And so to put yourself, uh, to propose these things and then figure out how to live up to them, I think is actually really interesting. That's definitely how I program. I am very interested in what have we not done before? What haven't we tried? This worked last year. That doesn't mean I'm going to do it again next year. It means how can we do, how can we build on this, but do something that stretches it? So that stretching, I think, and, you know, to think about that yourself as well. What's an, if you like something, what's another way I can do this that adds a new dimension to it? If I don't like it, how can I do something different? So I have one last question for you. The humanities seem to pervade basically everything that you do, and almost always has a public element. So how would you define the public humanities? Well, again, I think it's that, I, it's that idea that the humanities are not just for, they're not for an elite, they're not for people who have a PhD, they're not for... The arts and humanities reflect what we feel and and what we experience. And this is what I was saying at the beginning about this idea of complexity, and they really honor that complexity. And everyone's life is complex. Everyone's life has relationships. Everyone is struggling with meaningful work in whatever way meaningful, you know, how, whatever meaningful means to you. We are all sharing a planet in crisis. We are living in places that have needs to be met. And so I think that finding ways to make the work that's done in the humanities accessible to as many people as possible, because again, I think that the, that the complexity that they reflect is very reassuring to people rather than the, the other way around. It gives us a way out of living up to this sort of consumer notion of we can buy our way to happiness or we can, you know, if we just have enough money and enough things, then everything will be perfect and the surface will be smooth. The surface will never be smooth. <laughs> you shouldn't want that. So to, to find your way, to find another way to feel, to feel at home in the world and to feel like you are in the company of many, many others, no matter what their 
economic or cultural background. When I was a social worker, I worked a lot with women who were mostly women, not all, people who had been experienced sexual assault and also domestic violence. And those are two things that are just the, the total democracy of the people that end up in the system because of those two things. You know, it was everybody. And so that was another great experience of really seeing the, the connections of experience across language, across culture, across, across age, across class. And so again, I think the, and, and people that encountered one another who had had that experience, it was extremely meaningful to share those experiences. So I think that there are many, many ways that, that those differences, it's not that the differences don't exist, but we can find this shared humanity and that people feel less alone when they realize how many other people are in this complex, difficult, always changing life that we're all living. That's what the humanities does for me. That's, why, that's what I hope to bring to as many people as possible in the work I do. Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us today. It was a pleasure. It was my pleasure too. You've been listening to Careers in the Public Humanities. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast at web.uri.edu slash nextgenphd or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Look for Careers in the Public Humanities. podcast was founded by Rachel Basio and Michelle Meek, and this episode has been produced by Ryan Engley and Catherine Winters, with help from Michael Landreth in conjunction with the University of Rhode Island English Department. Introduction by Ryan Engley and Catherine Winters. Catherine Winters is our editor, and Mark Setta is our sound designer.